Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 271 of Forgotten Classics, where I am going to take yet one more little detour before starting our next book. But first, not a podcast highlight, but an audio highlight. I think I've mentioned before that I enjoy reading every week over at Rhino Times the column that Orson Scott Card, the science fiction author, does. It's called Uncle Orson Reviews Everything. And when I say everything, he's talking about local restaurants. He's talking about his newest favorite brand of toilet paper. He's talking about books. He's talking about movies. And the thing that's kind of funny is I very often don't agree with him on movies. I occasionally will agree with him about books. But he is so enthusiastic that I love to listen. And when he does hit something I like, it's something I often wouldn't have tried. So it's just interesting and fun to read his column. Now, this column is from a couple of weeks ago where he talks about the great courses. And this is something I talked about a while back, too which is that on audible.com, you can get the great courses for a credit. So if like me, somebody gave you a gift or you have a regular monthly subscription where a credit pops up every month, you can get one of these great courses that costs a lot of money free, essentially, or for your regular, however much it is, subscription. Now, Orson Scott Card will often talk about a lot of audio stuff because he's got something like a two and a half hour commute to teach at a university that I would say nearby, but that's not nearby. So he listens to tons of audio and reviews that also. And he reviewed three different great courses that I'm going to mention to you. And I'll put a link to his column if you want to read more of what he said about it. But it just reminded me that there's all kinds of great audio that's not necessarily fiction or an actual book, but it's a class. And the great thing, of course, about the great courses is no one's going to grade you. You can just do it for fun. Of course, that's what we like about a lot of these history podcasts, right? But these guys are actual professors or really knowledgeable people who have recorded their classes or done a specially recorded version of it for us. So it's really great. The three he recommended were all history. This first one's called The Industrial Revolution. And I've got to say, that does sound dull as dirt to me until you read Orson Scott Card's description where he says it's a fascinating saga of the inventors and entrepreneurs who transformed society and created the modern world. And then he talks about the fact that most of the poor people in America today are richer than the richest kings of ancient times because they have heating, air conditioning, instant communication, fitting clothing, shoes that last, fresh food year-round, medicine, etc., etc. And talks about how All this came from a lot of people doing things in different ways, not something that was coordinated. So that sounds interesting. It definitely sounds like something my husband would like to hear about. Then he listened to Cities of the Ancient World, which is something that sounds like I would enjoy hearing about it because I like hearing about how people lived back then in ways that you just don't expect. We have all these preconceptions that we think They were so backwards. They wouldn't have done anything the way we do it. They wouldn't have had anything better than we've figured out. Well, these kind of classes are where you really get a good grounding in what really was the truth about how they lived. And then he listened to Thomas Shippey's course called Heroes and Legends, the most influential characters of literature. So that's actually not history. That's literature. Now, the topic alone would interest me. Heroes and Legends. But what also really interests me is I saw Thomas Shippey's name and went, what? This guy is the Tolkien scholar. I mean, he's written several really good books. He's the person who replaced Tolkien when Tolkien retired. So he's got it going on. Now, now what he's doing here, what Shippey, Thomas Shippey is doing, is not talking about great literature, the way We got taught it in high school, maybe. He's talking about heroes we love in stories we love. So you have, of course, Frodo Baggins, 
You have The Wife of Bath from the Canterbury Tales. You have comic books. You have TV. You have all kinds of popular stories woven in there. It sounds fascinating. It certainly made me update my Audible wish list. (laughs) So I thought I'd mention it to you. The other reason I thought I'd mention it is because what I'm going to read this time is some excerpts from The Time Traveler's Guide to Medieval England, a handbook for visitors to the 14th century by Ian Mortimer. I heard of this book a long time ago, and I looked at the sample on Amazon, and it just looked fascinating because he's taking the point of view that people were people no matter what. And if we remember that, we're going to relate to history a lot better. But then he talks about, well, what would we find different or the same? What should we expect if we could time travel back for our vacation and spend two weeks in medieval England? What could we expect to eat? Where would we stay? What would the bed be like? What kind of clothing would we wear? Would we be drinking water? Say we decided to stay. What kind of a job would we get? That's really fascinating. And the way he wrote it is just like a guidebook. Here's what you can expect when you come up to a big city. You'll see the cathedral first. When you come along, you'll come to a break in the trees, and here's what you see here. Then you're going to see the gatehouse. Then you're going to notice the smell. Then you're going to see these people doing this stuff. Then you're going to get to the edge of the town. Then you'll hear people saying things like this. Then you'll hear noises like that. When he does this, it pulls you in. Your imagination is working. And that's what I wanted to share. So I'm going to read from several sections, and then I'll talk about them later. You may or may not be ready, but we're going to dive in. Come on, and I'll meet you on the other side. Excerpts from The Time Traveler's Guide to Medieval England, a handbook for visitors to the 14th century, by Ian Mortimer. This book is under copyright. These samples are being read under the Fair Use Act. From the Introduction Welcome to Medieval England. What does the word medieval conjure up in your mind? Knights and castles, monks and abbeys, huge tracts of forest in which outlaws live in defiance of the law? Such images may be popular, but they say little about what life was like for the majority. Imagine you could travel in time. What would you find if you went back to the 14th century? Imagine yourself in a dusty London street on a summer morning. A servant opens an upstairs shutter and starts beating a blanket. A dog guarding a traveler's pack horses starts barking. Nearby traders call out from their market stalls while two women stand chatting, one shielding her eyes from the sun, the other with a basket in her arms. The wooden beams of the houses project out over the street. Painted signs above the doors show what is on sale in the shops beneath. Suddenly a thief grabs a merchant's purse near the trader's stalls, and the merchant runs after him shouting, Everyone turns to watch. And you, in the middle of all this, where are you going to stay tonight? What are you wearing? What are you going to eat? As soon as you start to think of the past happening, as opposed to it having happened, a new way of conceiving history becomes possible. The very idea of traveling in the Middle Ages allows us to consider the past in greater breadth, to discover more about the problems which the English have had to face, the delights they found in life, and what they themselves were like. As with a historical biography, a travel book about a past age allows us to see its inhabitants in a sympathetic way, not as a series of graphs showing fluctuations in grain yields or household income, but as an investigation into the sensations of being alive in a different time. You can start to gain an inkling as to why people did this or that, or even why they believed things which we find simply incredible. You can gain this insight because you know that these people are human, like you, and that some of these reactions are simply natural. The idea of traveling to the Middle Ages allows you to understand these people not only in terms of evidence, but also in terms of their humanity, their hopes and fears, the drama of their lives. Although writers have traditionally been forced to resort to historical fiction to do this, 
There is no reason why a non-fiction writer should not present his material in just as direct and as sympathetic a manner. It does not make the facts themselves less true to put them in the present tense rather than in the past. Most of all, it needs to be said that the very best evidence for what it was like to be alive in the 14th century is an awareness of what it is like to be alive in any age, and that includes today. Our sole context for understanding all the historical data we might ever gather is our own life experience. We might eat differently, be taller, and live longer, and we might look at jousting as being unspeakably dangerous and not at all a sport. But we know what grief is, and what love, fear, pain, ambition, enmity, and hunger are. We should always remember that what we have in common with the past is just as important, real, and as essential to our lives as those things which make us different. Consider a group of historians in 700 years' time trying to explain to their contemporaries what it was like to live in the early 21st century. Maybe they will have some books to rely on, some photographs, perhaps some digitized film, the remains of our houses, and the odd council rubbish pit. But overall, they will concentrate on what it is like to be human. W. H. Auden once suggested that to understand your own country, you need to have lived in at least two others. One can say something similar for periods of time. To understand your own century, you need to have come to terms with at least two others. The key to learning something about the past might be a ruin or an archive, but the means whereby we may understand it is, and always will be, ourselves. Traveling Bridges We take bridges for granted. Almost always, when a modern road meets a river, there is a bridge to help us across. Riding through medieval England, you will soon realize that good stone bridges are relatively scarce. If you are riding along a highway between two prosperous and reasonably close market towns, or a highway connecting a county town with London, the chances are that you will have a pleasant jaunt over a smoothly paved stone structure with sharply pointed arches and fine triangular cutwaters projecting on either side. However, if you are traveling off the highway, most of the time you will find your trackway simply disappears into the mud and flow of the river. Occasionally, pedestrians might benefit from stepping stones or a clapper bridge in the West Country, but more often than not, you will get wet. The great age of stone bridge building begins in the reign of King John, 1199-1216. London's Great Bridge dates from them. The other great stone bridges, such as those at Exeter and Rochester, are later 13th century constructions. Before that, river crossings were either fords or wooden bridges. Even now, in the 14th century, many significant rivers have wooden bridges in various states of repair. Some are so rickety you would be well advised not to risk crossing them, but to ride through the original ford, which usually remains to the side. In very hilly and highland regions, there tend to be very few bridges. As the land is that much poorer, the absentee manorial lords are inclined to see little reason repeatedly to rebuild a wooden structure which is incapable of withstanding the fast-flowing torrents that pour down in winter. For this reason, if you travel into the Lake District or the skirts of Dartmoor, you will find that a good bridge is as rare as a well-maintained road. Westmoreland has 12 stone bridges by 1400. That equates to one bridge for every 41,000 acres in the county. The construction of stone bridges might put you in mind of the huge number of parish churches which are being rebuilt, extended, or refashioned in this century. The two are not unconnected. Just as founding a chantry or rebuilding a church is seen as a pious use of money, so too is the building of a stone bridge. It is something done for other people, and thus is exactly that form of long-lasting conspicuous charity from which 14th century men and women derive such pride. Hence, the building of bridges is heavily dependent on the increasing wealth of the merchant classes. Like the upkeep of the parish church, the maintenance of a bridge is considered a pious act. The responsibilities of a patron do not end on completion. Hence, most stone bridges are kept in good shape. 
This is helped in many cases by the local bishop granting a plenary indulgence to all those who contribute toward the repair of the structure. In this way, a large number of people can be conscripted through religion to serve the community. The person who originally endows the bridge is immortalized, and those who contribute to the upkeep are forgiven their sins. In keeping with these religious connotations, it is wholly fitting that most great bridges, and many smaller ones, have chapels built on them. Health and Hygiene Dirtiness and Cleanliness How do you define cleanliness? Most people, when asked this question, tend to define it in terms of personal experience. They know when their kitchen work surface is clean because everything which makes it dirty has been cleared off and it has been wiped down with detergent. What they are thus defining is the completion of a cleaning process, not a state of cleanliness itself. Medieval people do much the same thing, only using different processes. To regard a medieval kitchen as dirty, because it has not been wiped down with a modern detergent, is to apply our own standards inappropriately. It is like someone from the distant future telling us our kitchens are dirty because we have not wiped them down with some super detergent invented in the 23rd century. Cleanliness operates on several levels. For us, the most important is probably that of eradicating certain germs. Germ theory has, however, only been around since the late 19th century, so medieval people are a long way off understanding what germs are, let alone how they spread. Instead, complementing the idea that illness is a consequence of God's direction and care for the soul, they have a sense of spiritual cleanliness. This includes a theoretical range of smells which are, literally, heavenly. When saints die, there is supposed to be a smell like the breaking open of many perfume bottles, the odor of sanctity. For most people, this form of cleanliness, this saintly sweetness, is far more important than whether they have washed behind their ears or not. If a man is spiritually clean and without sin, he is far less likely to have to go through the purifying fires of illness and seek redemption through God's mercy. He will smell sweet to those around him. He will be without the stench of sin. In the modern world, we have no equivalent to this form of cleanliness. Instead, we have antibacterial wipes. Once you begin to break up notions of cleanliness in this way, you begin to realize there are many varieties of cleanliness. Domestic cleanliness, culinary cleanliness, public sanitation, and personal hygiene can be added to spiritual cleanliness. All of them are of great importance, even if some of them are very difficult to control, especially public sanitation. When you hear modern people idly refer to the Middle Ages as dirty, spare a thought for the 14th century housewife working hard, with her sleeves rolled up above her elbows, sweeping the hall floor clean, wiping down the tabletop, scrubbing her clothes and those of her husband and children, rinsing the cutlery and scouring the pots and pans. Picture her looking up with concern as a rain cloud approaches just after she has laid the sheets out on the grass to dry. Of course, there are some houses which are not so well attended, but foul-smelling homes have connotations of sinfulness, corruption, and decay. No one wants that sort of label. Rather, they want the opposite, cleanliness and respectability. In a community in which everyone knows everyone else, the cleanliness of your home may be more than just a matter of common decency. It may be an important aspect of your personal identity. The relationship between cleanliness, identity, pride, and respectability requires individuals to pay attention to their personal appearance as well. Areas of attention include the face, teeth, hands, body, fingernails, beard, and hair. Can you imagine a nobleman turning up at court, unwashed, in dirty clothes, not caring about what the king or his peers think of him? And can you imagine the king choosing a man to be his ambassador whom he cannot trust to keep himself clean? An ambassador who stinks will bring disgrace on the whole kingdom. In real life, men and women represent one another, dependents, relations, allies, and friends. Their appearance reflects the status and dignity of their social network and the esteem in which they and their friends are held. If you smell like the fetid air of a miasma, 
people will shun you like the plague and regard you as immoral, sinful, and perhaps mad. If you smell less savory than the common man, how can you hold your head up high in aristocratic society? If you wish to be reckoned important and capable of mixing with your social superiors, you will do all you can to avoid smelling of the dunghill in the yard and endeavor to smell as sweet as the lavender scattered among the fresh rushes in your hall floor. It is one thing to speak of the ideal of cleanliness, and quite another to achieve it. Methods vary according to wealth and social class. At the bottom end of the scale, those who work with noxious materials are aware of the need to bathe themselves daily, and so make use of rivers. London gong firmers end their working day with a dip in the Thames. Babies wrapped in linen swaddling, ideally sweetened with rose petals ground with salt, are regularly given baths. People who do not spend their days up to their necks in excrement have baths less regularly. It is simply too labor-intensive and time-consuming to heat up enough pots of water to fill a bathtub. But they do wash parts of themselves frequently. In the morning, the first thing self-respecting men and women do is wash their hands and face, those parts of the body which show. This will normally be done in a basin of water. Monasteries usually have a stone lavabo, or communal fountain, and washing basins for monks to wash their faces and hands, complete with a towel cupboard nearby. In addition, every meal sees a washing of hands, both before and after, and this applies across all sectors of society, lords and ladies, all the servants eating in the hall, monks, merchants, and people eating at an inn. Thus, most people wash their hands at least five times a day. Those who undertake long journeys are usually expected to wash their feet afterwards in a foot basin. Monks bathe their feet weekly, and many self-respecting people do likewise. As for full baths, Cluniac monks have two a year, Benedictine monks four, and only the rich have more than this. Nonetheless, the regular washing of hands, feet, and faces means that people are not all as filthy as you might imagine. Attitudes to hair are more complicated. Men expect their women folk to comb their hair for them, often beside a window, allowing them to see any lice and to remove them. However, excessive combing of hair among men is frowned upon. Moralists write diatribes against the practice, castigating the Danes who are supposed to be so vain that they comb their hair every day and have a bath every week. Women, too, come in for censure, largely because their personal grooming is seen as a display of vanity. Ignore such moralists. Most people appreciate cleanliness. Besides, as women are not permitted to wear their hair down in public, it must be either styled or covered. Hence, it is important for women to comb their hair so it may be dressed. Both sexes do wash their hair. Brass basins are employed for this purpose. A mixture of spices is used, such as cinnamon, licorice, and cumin, rather than an irritating soap. Health and Hygiene Plague You have no idea what destruction a disease can wreak upon society. When you see people consumed from within as if they are being eaten alive by some invisible creature, when you look at the faces of mothers and fathers staring at their feverish, blood-vomiting infants lying in their own beds, in the very places where they parted with a kiss the previous evening, then you might get an inkling. When you are there in 1348 and have been relieved of any complacent assumptions that anyone will survive this hideous calamity and have come face to face with the very real prospect that it will annihilate the whole of humanity— and that God has deserted mankind, then you will start to realize how destructive the plague is. The Great Plague, the term Black Death is not invented until the 19th century, is one of the most horrific events in human history, comparable only with those traumas which people have inflicted on one another in modern times. Arriving at the eastern end of the Mediterranean in 1347, spreading along the sea lanes to France, southern Spain, and Italy, and making its way up the continent to England by August 1348, it shakes society in every conceivable respect. It destroys large portions of the population, and leaves parts of the country completely empty of people. It starkly reveals the limits of both professional and amateur medical assistance,
No doctor of medicine can help the victims. No one can attend to the dying with any feeling but revulsion and despair. The plague forces men to reappraise the fundamental relationship between themselves and God. This horrific disease does not just affect the sinful, it kills the innocent too. If this is the work of God, then he is indiscriminate in his judgments. The most often quoted figure of one-third dead, a third of all the people in the world, as the contemporary chronicler Froissart declares, may lead you to believe that two-thirds of the population survived the disease. This is misleading. If you catch it, you will very probably die of it. Those who survive are predominantly those who do not catch it, having some natural or genetic defense against the infection, or just being plain lucky. When it gets into a monastery, normally half the monks die, if not more. At Peterborough in Northamptonshire, 32 of the 64 monks perish. At Henwood in Warwickshire, only three nuns are left out of the original 15. Scare stories spread of how in some towns tens of thousands of people are dying, and how in Bristol nine-tenths of the population are already dead. There is utter panic. No one can really tell how many people are dying up and down the country. In London, 200 are buried every day. The deaths in 1348-49 to 49 are so numerous that the statistics are much easier to talk about than the individual tragedies. Looked at from the safe distance of the 21st century, one can see its beneficial effects. How the Great Plague cauterizes feudalism, frees up capital, and allows society to develop in a more democratic way. But a visit to the time reminds you, with a sharp shock, of both the reality and the scale of the suffering. If anything, it proves the value of virtual history, of understanding historical events as lived experiences, as opposed to impersonal facts. Imagine a disease were to wipe out 40% of the modern population of the UK, more than 25 million people. Now imagine a historian in the future discussing the benefits of your death and the deaths of your partner, your children, and your friends. You would want to cry out or hang your head in despair that historians could blithely comment on the benefits of such suffering. There is no shadow of a doubt that every one of these people you see in 1348, whether they will die or survive, deserves your compassion. When you see women dragging their parents' and children's corpses into ditches, weeping and screaming, when you listen to a man who has buried all five of his sons with his own hands, and in his distress, he tells you that there was no divine service when he did so and that the death bell did not sound, you know that these people have entered a chasm of grief beyond all description. In the fields like dead and rotting sheep, 5,000 in one field alone, according to Henry Knighton. As you look around and see the ravens flying through deserted streets and half-wild dogs and pigs eating the corpses abandoned on the edge of a village, you will see something which no historian will ever see. The doors of houses left blackly open, thus to remain as night comes and day dawns, until someone enters and finds the cold body of the owner. The passing bells are banned by the church, the traditional laments thrown away. Even prayer fades into a mere whisper of horror. Beyond this, although one could say a great deal, there is little which needs to be said. What you will see is just too shocking. Where to Stay Peasant Houses there are as many different sorts of peasant houses as there are peasant families, and there are huge variations across the regions. But perhaps you are wondering about staying in the house of a moderately prosperous Midlands yeoman with 30 acres to his name. His house is likely to be a wooden structure of three bays, about 45 feet by 15 or so, built on a stone foundation plinth. The hall extends to two bays, the third bay at one end is a storeroom at ground floor level, and the family bedchamber above reached by ladder. Normally the frame of the house is made up of two curved oak timbers, crux, 
joined by a heavy ridgepole across the top of the house, with oak or elm purlins forming the frame of the walls. The whole structure has a slightly warped look, since it is built with unseasoned timbers that twist into their own shape as they harden over the first few years. The walls themselves are made of ash struts encased in cob. The roof is framed with ash struts across oak beams and thatched with osiers, or rye or wheat straw. A few slates or tiles cover the parts likely to be affected by sparks from the fire. One problem with this organic design is that while it holds the heat well, it attracts vermin which burrow into the walls and roof of the house. You enter by way of an oak door set on iron hinges. This fits into a frame which is strong enough to warrant the door having a lock. Immediately behind is the hall, which is quite dark, being lit only by a central fire and shuttered, unglazed windows, which are small enough to keep the heat in and the winter weather out. The furniture includes a chair, a pair of benches, several chests, and little else. The walls are not painted, but might be plastered. Looking up, you will see that the beams and upper parts of the room are blackened with smoke. Some of the householder's possessions are hung on the walls, or suspended from the beams. Some tools, joints of salted meat kept over the winter, tubs, tripods, hoops, and buckets. The floor is strewn with rushes and herbs. Beneath the rushes is bare earth, which is swept with a broom of clustered twigs when the rushes are replaced. The fire rests in a clay-lined pit in the center of the hall, and is kept alight day and night from late autumn through to spring. If it is used for cooking, it may be kept alight all year round, although cooking tends to be done outside in summer. Utensils such as a spit or gridirons are stored here beside the hearth. Here, too, is a brass cauldron in which much of the food is boiled. Pans of riveted copper plates, a mortar and pestle, and bake stones, for oat cakes, are hung on the wall or kept in a chest. Some peasants even keep their grain and vegetables in wooden chests in the hall. Once your host has made you welcome, he will offer you a bench beside the fire so you may warm yourself as the family bustles about, preparing for the meal. You will not be expected to assist in any way. You are an honored guest. The householder or his servant, most yeomen have a servant or two, will set up the table board on a couple of trestles and arrange its furnishings of wooden bowls, ceramic jugs, and drinking vessels. If he thinks highly of his social position, then he will have invested in a couple of silver spoons. The tablecloth is linen or canvas and hangs down to the floor. The householder sits at the head of the table. He takes charge of cutting the bread and meat, if there is any, and distributing it. The rest of the family sit at the table beside you on the benches. A boy carrying a ewer ensures that everyone has the opportunity to wash their hands thoroughly before the meal. After supper, the householder will have his children sent to bed in the family bedchamber and spend the evening talking with you beside the fire. You see his face in the small golden glow of a tallow candle. Even in this poor light, you may find his wife darning or stitching clothes for the family, squinting at her needlework. When the time comes to go to bed, you and your servant will be offered a made-up bed in the bedchamber upstairs. This is a mattress stuffed with straw or oats, placed on wooden planks and covered with linen sheets, woolen blankets, and a pillow together with a bedspread. In Chaucer's Reeves Tale, the two students staying overnight are given a made-up bed to share in the bedchamber. There, too, sleep the miller and his wife, who share a bed, their daughter, who has her own berth, and their baby in a cot. At night, the room is totally dark. No candle is left burning through the night in a peasant's house. If you should need to answer the call of nature, you will have to get up, feel your way to the door, descend the ladder, and go outside. You will not find a chamber pot. What to do? Literature and storytelling. Shocking though it may appear to you, you have something in common with these people who believe in relics, fight tournaments, and hunt with falcons. Books. Many of them see literature as a satisfying and enjoyable way to spend time. Of course, they might not actually pick up a book themselves. Lords and their families, together with members of their household, are accustomed to having books read to them as they sit in the hall or chamber of an evening. 
nevertheless, the music of a tale told well is as popular as any other form of minstrelsy, and as enjoyable as literature in the modern world. Literature is a means to delight the mind and embolden the spirit. It is therefore not surprising that it is available outside noblemen's houses. Pick up a book like the Achenlech Manuscript, written in the 1330s. It contains no fewer than 44 texts in English for the well-educated wife to read to her husband. Flick through at random. You will come across a short account of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin, then the story of Sir Degaret, the Seven Sages of Rome, Floris and Blanchefleur, a romance, the Sayings of the Four, philosophers, the Battle Abbey Roll, a list of Norman knights who fought at Hastings, and the famous romance Guy of Warwick. Later you might read the short poem In Praise of Women, or the romance Arthur and Merlin, or Sir Tristram, Tristan and Isolde, or Sir Orfeo, Orpheus and Eurydice. Perhaps historical tales are more to your liking, in which case you can turn to the life of Richard the Lionheart, or the life of King Alexander the Great. The whole book is a veritable library in one volume, with entertaining texts for all the family. Although literature is something shared across the centuries, the way people actually read varies considerably. All medieval books are manuscripts. Printed books do not arrive in England until the earliest imports in the 1460s, so it is worth paying the extra money for a really good, clean text which you can read clearly, whether it be in English or French. Because they are manuscripts, all tend to be valuable, so they are not the sort of things you pick up lightly. Ladies may have reading parties in the gardens of aristocratic houses, being read to as they sit on the grass surrounded by flowers and trees. But reading otherwise takes place indoors. Communal readings may take place in the hall, but private readings to the Lord and his family alone, or with invited guests in the Lord's solar chamber, are also common. Those doing the actual reading may well be hampered by the lack of light. Candles certainly put a strain on readers' eyes. Because of this, some wealthy individuals have wooden-rimmed spectacles, invented by Italians in the late 13th century. The studious Bishop of Exeter, Walter Stapledon, who dies in 1326, leaves a pair of spectacles in his will. The result of all these difficulties with light, text, audience, valuable manuscripts, and spectacles is that reading is not something idly done. Literature has more of the character of a performance than a moment of quiet reflection. This is where the enjoyment of storytelling comes in. As only a twentieth of the rural population can read, literature is still a minority activity. Most storytelling is done by minstrels or storytellers traveling with minstrels who recite their stories from memory. Nor can you separate this oral tradition from written culture and say the two are different. Lords might listen to a story being read to them from a book, or they might equally listen to a minstrel in the hall recite a tale from memory. And just as some stories move from the written word to being performed from memory, so there are stories which begin as oral tales told at fairs and end up being written down. The stories of Robin Hood are a good example. If you wander around the forests of Yorkshire in the years leading up to 1318, you will meet people who appear to be of the Robin Hood fraternity. You may even meet an outlaw called John Little, who in 1318 takes part in a robbery with members of the Cutterell gang. You may even meet a real Robin Hood, real in the sense that several men of that name were living in and around the manor of Wakefield in the decade before 1318. Probably none of these men will live up to your expectations of a bunch of expert archers clad in green, led by a smiling hero with a highly refined social conscience. But within fifty years of the Coterell gang turning to crime, the deeds of Robin Hood and Little John are being celebrated up and down the country. The poet William Langland describes one of his characters in about 1377 as being able to recite rhymes about Robin Hood and the Earl of Chester. Not until the next century will any Robin Hood stories be circulated in a written form. Thus, literature and the oral tradition swap stories to the benefit of both, and to the entertainment of the people who cannot necessarily afford books themselves.
the medieval character, sense of humor. The passions of a violent society spill over into the sense of humor you will encounter. Yes, there is humor, lots of it, amid the violence and sexism. But whether you will find it funny is quite a different matter. For example, here is a medieval joke. One merchant asks another, "Are you married?" "I had three wives." The second merchant responds, "But all three hanged themselves from a tree in my garden." The first merchant retorts, "Pray, give me a cutting from this miraculous tree." Sarcasm might commonly be referred to as the lowest form of wit in our own time, but in the 14th century, it is just about the highest. It is arguably the only form which does not require the humiliation of a victim. One of the most famous humorous letters of the century is written by the young Edward II to Louis Devereux, in which he promises to send him a present of some misshapen greyhounds from Wales, which can well catch a hare if they find it asleep, and running dogs which can follow at an amble. For well we know how you love lazy dogs. Similarly, if you visit court in late 1328, you might be amused by Roger Mortimer's sarcastic reply to a letter from the Earl of Lancaster, his avowed enemy. Having been accused of impoverishing the crown, Mortimer denies everything vehemently, and then adds, "But if any man knows how to make the king richer, he is most welcome at court." Practical jokes are perhaps the most common form of humor. Men and women are often amused when other people injure themselves. Take hawking, for example. At one level, this is the hawk-tied custom of capturing men and women and holding them prisoner and releasing them for a fee in order to raise money for the parish. On Mondays, men are captured by women, and vice versa on Tuesdays. But sometimes it gets out of hand. A group of lads lay a noose on the ground and wait for an unsuspecting passerby to step into it. Then they hoist him up. Suddenly, by his ankles, often bashing his head on the ground in the process. Watch out at dusk when it is difficult to see the rope against the mud of the street. Otherwise, you will be kept hanging by one leg until you have paid a ransom. Those who see the spectacle will laugh heartily at your embarrassment. In a violent society, even the humor is violent. One day, King Edward the Second is riding along the road behind one of his kitchen staff, called Morris. Who falls off his horse? Something is wrong with Morris, for he is unable to keep his balance and falls off again. Does the king ride up and offer him a helping hand, or send a servant to inquire after the man's health? Nothing of the sort. Instead, he laughs and laughs and laughs. Wiping away a tear, he gives the man the equivalent of a year's salary as a present, not to help him get better, but for making him laugh so much. The medieval character, the warrior's love of flowers. You might now be thinking that the medieval English character is composed of cruelty and violence. If so, you would not be far wrong. It has been formed through an intense awareness of both, but it is also composed of many other things. Just as a biographer only begins to understand his subject when he comes to terms with the contradictions and tensions within the character, so too you will only begin to understand the medieval mind when you begin to realize its contradictions. For example, the supreme masters of violence are those military commanders who can direct sudden and overwhelming force at their enemy. But when you begin to examine their true characters, these men are rarely brutal. Henry, Duke of Lancaster, is one of the greatest military leaders of the century. He leads an Anglo-Gascon army to victory after victory in 1345. And yet, what are his pastimes and pleasures? He likes all the usual things: hunting, feasting, and, by his own admission, seducing women, especially peasant girls. But he also loves the song of the nightingale and the scents of roses, musk, violets, and lily of the valley. The image of a great war leader closing his eyes and inhaling the aroma of flowers reminds us that some medieval lords are very far from being two-dimensional, violent thugs. Henry even writes a book of spiritual devotion. There is poetry and sophistication in such men: intellectual awareness, human kindness, and generosity of spirit. And there is deep sincerity too. 
When the same duke swears an oath not to give up a siege until he has planted his banner on the walls of the castle, you can be sure that he intends to fulfill it. Not even a direct order from the king himself can persuade him to do otherwise. Perhaps one of the things which will amaze you most of all is how often a man in armor, a fighting machine, will resolutely stand by what he personally believes is virtuous, and how easily he can be moved to tears. There is no more obvious contrast to the body and sensitive humor and violence of the time than people's spirituality. To be modestly religious in the 14th century is to be fervent by modern standards. You will find the depth of religious feeling in daily life quite astonishing. Many people attend Mass every single day. Many give alms to the poor every day. Many will go on four or five pilgrimages a year, and some will visit more than a hundred different churches annually. You might think that this is all a show of religion, a demonstration of piety in order to encourage the lower classes to believe their superiors are closer to God. But such a view would not only be extremely cynical, it would be wrong. Just as there is a violent streak running through the whole of society, so too there is a religious one. One of the greatest fighting heroes of the century is Sir Walter Manny, a personal friend of King Edward III and Queen Philippa. He is the sort of swashbuckling character who will throw himself at a horde of French knights with the conviction of an indomitable man. He has been known to rush out of a besieged town and attack a siege engine just because it is disturbing his dinner. And yet, he is also the sort of man who establishes a great monastery, the London Charter House, and who buys enough land so that the poor of London have somewhere to bury their dead during the Great Plague. He might be a fighting machine, but when he removes his armor, he is a man of sympathy and piety, and these virtues are as much a part of his character as his military prowess. The key to understanding such men is the notion of respectability. If you want to flatter a man in any walk of life, tell him he is of noble bearing and behavior and deserving of respect. Men want to serve in important positions of office in towns and manners. It adds to their stature. Men want to be seen to be valued by great men of the realm, especially the king. Most of all, men want to be honored and loved in death. It is no exaggeration to say that at some great funerals you will see more than 10,000 people in mourning. The greater the numbers at your funeral, the more loved, the more honored, and the more respected you must have been in life. Hence, great men start rewarding paupers for attending their funerals. When Richard Gravesend, Bishop of London, is buried in 1303, a total of 31,968 poor people attend the ceremony. Such determination to appear dignified and respected is common to most men and women. Cursing or defaming someone is a serious offense, and the victim's pride may well cause the defamer to be hauled up in court. It is perhaps this very straight-laced respectability that explains why people find it so funny when a proud man has his hood stolen or gets hocked by his ankle and lifted into the air. So there you have it. That is a truly eclectic sampler because as I flipped through, I would just read things that I really liked. And they're kind of all out of order, <laughs> as you may be able to tell. But I just kept finding more and more things. So this book is available, obviously, in print, but also Audible, and probably other places that sell audiobooks, has it too. So uh, if you want to hear somebody read it to you, which might be a really great way to do it, you can get it like that too. The part I really loved was when the author said, well, here's a way that we're all similar. We love books. We love stories. We love literature. And the lords and ladies of the time and anybody else who couldn't read or had the money and leisure to do so had people reading to them. Well, here we are. Full circle. We are more like those people from the 14th century than we realized. I'm reading to you. You're listening. We're all having a great time. I can't do the performance part very well. Not like some people who I love to listen to, like Juliet Stevenson reading Jane Austen's books, that sort of thing. But it's the same essential sharing of a story together. So I love that we're using this very modern technology to do something that is age old, sharing stories together. Now, 
I really do have to apologize for it being so long from the last podcast. I was so good about getting those weekly Halloween-oriented ones out during October. And then, well, first I lost my voice, as we all know, and then that took a while to come back. And then after that, I had uh, so much work. The time when I usually record, I was having to get to work early, stay late. It's my catalog time of year. Any long-term listeners will say, oh, yeah, that's right. It's about now. So it was very frustrating for me anyway. In fact, a couple of nights ago, I was having dreams about reading to people. (laughs) And it wasn't because I was guilty. I know y'all have plenty you can listen to besides me. It was obviously me just missing reading which I kind of liked as an affirmation after all this time for myself. Now, I do want to mention there are several good things starting up on regular podcasts that I listen to and dip in and out of. I wanted to let you know the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, which is mostly subscriber-based, but once a month they have a free episode. They're doing Hawthorne Month. Nathaniel Hawthorne's Weird Stories, as mentioned by H.P. Lovecraft. I honestly had never thought of Hawthorne as being an author of weird tales until I read Rappuccini's Daughter and, oh gosh, whatever that other one was, you know, a while back. And that's when I went, oh my gosh, these all have these really crazy elements in them. And that's when I discovered, no wonder I like Nathaniel Hawthorne. He's a lot weirder than I realized. Also, the Classic Tales podcast has begun reading The Portrait of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And in an interesting bit of synchronicity, Craftlet is getting ready to start The Portrait of Dorian Gray also. I think it's not as the regular book. I think it's part of the subscriber feed for Craftlet. But still, interesting to have two different versions starting up. Chopbard has begun Twelfth Night. So after a variety of histories, plays, they're going to comedy. And what's really great about this is they have gotten several people to actually read the parts. So you're listening to it, and then he's commenting on it. Very enjoyable. So definitely check that out. I will put links in the show notes. And since I was already protesting about not having much time. I don't have much time. So I'm going to very quickly say the most important thing. Thank you for coming by to listen. I really appreciate it. I certainly wouldn't be reading these things out loud otherwise, and I get so much out of them when I do. So thank you very much. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.